0: Well, we are in our series to seek and to save. We've been at this a few months now. We are in the first part of chapter four of this gospel. Uh, Last week we had um, part one of what I am calling close combat. So this is the uh, verses where uh, Jesus and the devil interact, and and, and, uh, Jesus faces temptation in the wilderness. And I called this close combat, uh, because I had, around Veterans Day, had been watching some of my favorite uh, older military shows and and movies, and it struck me as I was preparing uh, for this section uh, that Jesus Uh, takes on the devil here uh, just one-on-one in in close combat. There's not drawing other people in. And uh, I just, I really liked the idea of that. And and Jesus goes right at the devil, despite of being completely worn down and in the wilderness, and we'll get to that in more in a moment. Uh, But he he could have responded in any number of ways, and yet uh, he stood up as we would expect our Lord and Savior to do and and, and really uh, took on the devil right in his, you know, quote-unquote playground, so to speak. And so uh, that's why I called it Close Combat. Uh, We got to work through uh, the majority, and then I kind of had to do one of those hard rights at the end because I had more stuff than I had time. And then we had brisket and turkey and all sorts of food waiting for us last week. So Took a hard right, so today we're going to finish up with part two. Um, I knew that traveling and that sort of thing would uh, generate a different audience last week and this week, so I will spend a little bit of time in review so that you're not just coming in on the last uh, temptation. But if you would stand with me, um, we are going to read through Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, and I'd encourage you to use uh, your own Bible or the Bibles in the seats. It'll also be on the screen uh, but before we read that together, uh, two verses that I wanted to bring up that I also used last week. So I want to set the, the framework for this so that we don't think that it's just some story and it's just this thing that happened between uh, the devil and, and Jesus. This This still applies to you and I today as we live out our Christian lives here. Paul says in Ephesians 6, verses 12 and 13, for our struggle, that's believers, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness and the heavenly places. And so there's this battle going on for you and for I, for me and for believers that aren't believers yet there's this battle that's going on. And it's, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And so we're in a battle again, close, close combat. Um, and then so that we can have a, a, a good full grasp of, well, Jesus is the son of God. And so he doesn't face temptation in the same way that we do. He's, he's different, he's God. He's God. Well, Hebrews 4.15 tells us differently. It says, For we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. And so there is nothing in some way, shape, or form that Jesus has not suffered through uh, that would be unique to you and I, but not uh, something that Jesus faced himself, is what, is what this verse is saying. So lest we think, well, Jesus hasn't walked in my shoes, he has, and Scripture tells us otherwise. All right, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was being led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had finished, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Verse 5. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this dominion and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Let's pray. But Father, we come to you this morning uh, in, in, during a time, a week of thanksgiving uh, for our country and for our families, thankful to be gathered together today uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord. and that's only because of you and this story that you've been writing uh, in our lives and throughout all history, a uh, one where your son was sent on our behalf uh, to sacrifice himself for us so that We could become children of God, your children, Lord, and we thank you for that. We thank you for this opportunity to gather. We thank you for this opportunity to uh, study this uh, God-breathed, holy-inspired Word that you've given us, Lord. Uh, So be with us today as as we study, and Lord, may we have open ears and and, and hearts as we study your Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. may be seated. Right, I'm going to do some review. So for those of you that uh, were here last week, this will be a refresher for you. Um, and in case you don't like refreshers, then you probably don't read your Bible very often, because there's uh, many times where I'm reading the Bible, and I said, "Didn't I just read that?" Okay? So I'm following the Bible's lead here. All right. Uh, just some general context for this passage as we begin to get into it now. We don't see these words here: first Adam, second Adam. Uh, but as we uh, study the New Testament, uh, we, there are places like Romans 5 and, and 1 Corinthians 15 uh, talk about this concept of being. A, there's a first Adam; that's the Adam that we know from the Garden, uh, the first of uh, the first man created. And then Paul specifically talks about Jesus being the second Adam. All right, so the first Adam and the second Adam. Now, the, 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 the closest connection that we have is in this very subject that we're talking about in these two weeks, which is temptation, right? Adam faced temptation. Adam and Eve had temptation in the garden. And, of course, this whole passage is about Jesus being tempted. And so there are some similarities uh, but there are a number of differences to create this contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam. Uh, the first Adam uh, that didn't measure up and the second Adam that is beyond measure, right? Uh, and some of those things, uh, Adam faced temptation in the best possible surroundings. Think about it. He was in the Garden of Eden. Per- perfection, paradise, right? It's what we know about the Garden of Eden, and Jesus faced temptation in the wilderness, or what we might consider to be the worst of surroundings. Uh, Adam lived in the pre-fall world, so there's no sin. The the, the garden was perfect, paradise, whereas Jesus enters the scene uh, in a sin-filled world, right? So there's this contrast, and Luke likes to contrast uh, in Adam's case, so the first Adam's case, there's no build up to temptation. Literally, the very first time that at least scripture tells us that Adam and Eve were tempted, were confronted with the possibility of sin, what'd they do? They fell for it. Sin. Jesus, on the other hand, uh, we learned that his ministry didn't start until he was about 30 years old. And because he was fully human, because he had yielded. Uh, His deity, in so many ways, emptied himself, Philippians 2 tells us. Surely he faced different kinds of uh, sin, opportunity, and temptation uh, through the the early parts of his life uh, before this scene that we see here in Luke 4. And yet, while Adam fell immediately, uh, Jesus responded in perfect obedience, right? Adam is again in lush paradise with everything to eat from that he wanted except for one specific place that he wasn't supposed to eat from. Jesus is in the wilderness, and I'll show you some pictures that some of you have seen before here in a moment, but for 40 days, no food. So the opposite, belly full, eating everything that he wants, and this, I mean, who who knows what the food was like in the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, think of the best stuff that you've ever had and it's gonna put, put it to shame. And here Jesus is with nothing for 40 days. And obviously the, the, the main difference is that Adam fell, the first Adam fell and he fell hard and we all got wrapped up in that. But the second Adam, Christ, our Lord, our Savior, didn't fall. Because of him, we sit here today, uh, as I prayed, as as children of God. Amen. Uh, Second, we see this come through in the first uh, verse here, that that Jesus was uh, what I called fully prepared for battle. Uh, The the verse says that he's full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Then it goes on to say that he was being led around by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit here. So now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was being led around uh, by the Holy Spirit. And that's something that uh, we should pay attention to. Uh, That's something that you and I uh, as believers, if you're a believer, uh, you have the Holy Spirit that resides in you. You're full of the Holy Spirit uh, in the same manner that we see uh, that Jesus is here. Uh, Last week, I went through a number of different places in the Bible that uses the phrase full of the Holy Spirit and what that was connected to and how that mattered in the great scheme of things. Uh, Being led around by the Holy Spirit. Being led around by the Holy Spirit. Uh, What might immediately seem as a bit odd in this temptation situation that the Holy Spirit would be the one leading him around um, is the more we think about it is exactly what we ought to expect, that the Holy Spirit would be leading Jesus around And the same is true for you and I. As we navigate our lives, as we navigate our Christian walk, I've used the word sanctification before the the process of living out the rest of our lives, uh, trying to become more and more Christ-like as time goes by. The Holy Spirit is leading us through that. Through the good times and the bad, and through the valleys and and the highs and, and all of that stuff. The Holy Spirit's not just there certain times, and, and not and not there others, in, in the same way uh, that we see uh, with Jesus here. What we see here is Jesus um, fully devoted to the Spirit. He's given himself over fully to the Spirit's leading, and I uh, the uh, tribulation part, the trials heart, Um, there can be, depending on what your background is with teaching and with the Bible and what kind of Bible studies you're in or or maybe a church that you've attended before, we can skip over the suffering and the trials and that sort of a thing and sort of gloss over it and make it seem like it's not supposed to be a part of the Christian life. Uh, That's just simply untrue. Uh, If Jesus had to endure this type of thing and virtually every character that we see in the, in, in the Bible did as well, then, then who are we to think that we're not going to have to navigate through trials and tribulation as well? And so that's part of what we're learning in this passage. A few verses to reinforce that. John sixteen thirty three says, "'I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Uh, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world.'" What's that saying to you and I? Despite whatever you may be facing, like, it's already a foregone conclusion, right? We, we win in the end. We might not see and feel that today or tomorrow or next year, but we know the ultimate outcome. Take heart, I have overcome the world, Jesus says. Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice I mean, how many of us rejoice in our sufferings and trials? Not usually, right? We're usually running from it or denying it. Rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that, what? Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There we have the Holy Spirit leading us even through trials and suffering. 1 Peter 4:12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Do not be surprised. What would be another way of saying that? Expect it, right? Expect trials, expect suffering as though something do, do not be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. See, if we sit back and we're passive and we don't live an active faith life in all the ways that that encompasses, we cannot be ready for things that are coming at us. Peter says elsewhere that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion waiting to devour us. Now think about that as you leave here today. Like some movie scene, like you're gonna walk out the front door and you gotta go through lions, right? You know they're there are you just going to walk out like haphazardly, right? Like you're going to be prepared for whatever that looks like in that moment. So we shouldn't be surprised as though something that we don't know about is going to be sprung upon us. We know that it's there. And then finally, James 1, 2 through 4, count it all as joy. Remember, we just said rejoice a moment ago. Count it all as joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's another one of the the proof texts that we would use when we talk about that process of sanctification. We're living out our Christian life, good times and bad, trials and suffering and all of those things, and, and that produces endurance it produces steadfastness and, and we're more prepared tomorrow than we were today think about any endeavor that you do you're working out for the first time you're learning to ride a bike on these mountain bike courses you you got a new job right there's a weathering there's a uh, there's a trial Period, there's suffering that goes along with learning a new thing, right? And that produces endurance, that produces steadfastness. And so that's what we see here. Trials are there all around us. We shouldn't be surprised by it. Uh, In the wilderness, the passage says, In the wilderness, what's this represent? On the whole, this represents vulnerability, but specifically because uh, Jesus was isolated. I'm going to show you the pictures that some of you have seen here in a moment. But Jesus is is isolated. Uh, He's deprived of of food. And when we're isolated and deprived, we become in a weakened state, especially as more and more time goes by. In the wilderness also describes not just the physical reality that Jesus was in in this situation. Uh, This is the way that we would describe uh, if you were having to give your your testimony, perhaps. You might describe, I might describe uh, my pre-Christian days as being in the wilderness, right? It's another form of isolation. What was I isolated from? God, right? Because of my own, Choosing Because of my own sin, I would be deprived in different ways, and I would be in a weakened state. And so it has practical and physical applications as well as describing what our faith life is like. And we see this here in the wilderness for 40 days, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they had finished, he was hungry. And so this is what he's getting led around by. With the Holy Spirit. And so, just some pictures. I've had a number of you guys tell me that this was helpful to sort of picture where this is happening and and, and even when, when we've used timelines and stuff like that. The the darker shaded area would be what we know as the Judean wilderness. Earlier in Luke, when it talked about John the Baptist's ministry being in the wilderness, uh, this would have been the area that he was working in, and specifically. Uh, the more uh, northern part there that kind of trails right along where the Jordan River is. Uh, This is also uh, the area uh, where Jesus uh, faces these temptations and some real pictures of what this looks like. Uh, It's not this packed, dense forest of trees that you and I might think of as wilderness here in the UP. It's this arid, dry place where there's uh, little to no water, uh, no food, scorpions, things like that. It's a place that we would not want to be. Elevation, valleys, ravines being stuck uh, down in there. This would be a, a picture of, uh, you're probably familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, this would have been a thing like they were navigating. Uh, so you you can see that would have been dangerous. So when we add pictures, sometimes it can give us greater understanding and context to what might be going on. And finally, in the beginning verses, there we see being tempted by the devil, being tempted by the devil. And this is where we're first introduced to the devil. We know him as a number of different names. He was originally a Lucifer, an angel. A holy angel, Isaiah calls him the highest of all created beings, blameless in his ways from the day that he was uh, recreated until unrighteousness was found in him. And so we see this arrogant streak described in Ezekiel uh, where uh, he wanted to be above God. In the Old Testament, one of the most common ways to refer to God is... uh, Most God most high. And what Satan was doing, what the devil was doing, is essentially trying to usurp that and become the most high, replace God in that highest position. And so uh, he was cast out. A number of angels were cast out with him. And and the Bible describes uh, the devil, Satan, in a number of different ways. A liar, a murderer, a dragon, a snake, the accuser the evil one, uh, one who blinds the minds of the unbelieving, uh, the prince of the power of the air, a uh, roaring lion, as I referred to earlier, uh, and the tempter. And that's probably what we have the most familiarity with, especially as, we're, uh, as we consider Genesis 3, because he initially tempts, right? Tempts Eve, tempts Adam, twists words, but he's really subtle. He's very rarely, at least in our descriptions of him in Scripture, uh, direct. It's it's subtle. It's nuanced. It's it's twisted. What we would expect with someone who is tempting or or, or deceiving. Um, one common theme that we see in, in virtually uh, any instance that we see uh, Satan in Scripture, and specifically in these. Three temptation narratives is this concept of deception. Now, what we see is elements of truth woven into each one of these temptations. Elements of truth. And then there's a, there's a subtle twisting or a subtle tweaking of something to where if we're not really thinking about it and, and, and we don't know the word, we can think, is that what that says, right? Remember what he said to Eve? Did God really say? He's calling in to question the word of God. Did God really say? And now we're, well, did he? Right? And, and now we're confused. And that's how deception works. And it works best when there's a whole bunch of truth or seeming truth in it. And then the lie, then the twisting, then the temptation, then the deception. Because you hear, maybe there's four parts to this thing and you hear the first three parts and they're like, yep, yep, yep. Sounds right, right, right. Well, that must be right too, if these three were right. And that's the trap uh, that he sets—that's the trap that we fall into. Uh, one more word on this uh, before we move on to the to the actual temptations. I just wanted to point out—I I pointed this out last week—but I, I do think it's worth repeating. Uh, in the second paragraph, there it says, "If you are the son." Of God. And I said last week that this is actually a poor translation. What the word if should say is since or because. So read that with that word there. And the devil said to him, because you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Does that change things a little bit? See this, if you are the son of God, at least for me, at first, if, if, if you don't know any better, you're, you're kind of questioning, well, is, is the devil just questioning whether or not Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And, and that's not actually what it says. That's not what it's referring to. When we put the word since or because there, uh, the devil is assuming, right, that Jesus is the Son of God. And so here we have the devil, Satan. All of those descriptors that I mentioned a minute ago, knowing right from the get-go that this is Jesus, the Son of God. There's no question about who he is. And so for me and for you, what I think our takeaway for there should be is when we read Scripture or we get into conversations, perhaps with folks that don't know the word very well or maybe a contentious relative or something like that, it's not unlikely that Jesus' deity will be called into question. Well, he's not really the Son of God. How, how could he be both? And, and, and this long list of things? And this was a big issue in the first, second and third century after Christ as well. Uh, and our response to that should be, well, if Satan, if the devil knows that it's the Son of God, right, then why should we be questioning it? If our enemy knows? and it's assumed that it's the Son of God, well, then that argument doesn't hold any water at all, right? There is no point in even having any discussion about it, and this is something that we should know and be aware of. Shifting into the temptations, I, I called the, the, the first temptation sort of my takeaway is to, to don't doubt the mission. Don't doubt the mission, and we See this here, and the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, a man shall not live on bread alone. And our takeaway here is, obviously there is this um, intent for material needs, right? The lack of material needs is intended to get Jesus to question the father's love. It's not about being hungry or that eating food is wrong or that Jesus could show off his power or anything like that. This is a subtle way of the devil saying to try to get Jesus to question the Father's love, to doubt the mission that he'd been sent on. And think about other places, and we're gonna get a little more in depth here a little bit later, but think about other places that food and provision have come up in Scripture right? Those awful Israelites who can't take more than one step forward without going two steps back in all of the Old Testament, what does God do for them? Well, he provides them provision, right? Food and water. Well, if you would provide food and water for them, then, then you really ought to question his love that he won't provide it for you. And this is an intent on the devil's behalf, to get Jesus to question the mission that he's been sent on, to question the Father's love. That's what's happening here. The same thing can happen to you and I. We're, we're tempted when we have these things that come up. Think about this in your own faith life, or maybe you've been in discussions with people that are, that are struggling with their faith or maybe just coming to faith. Isn't a big part of it doubting God's love for them? Does God really love me? If God really loved me, then why would he let me be hungry? If God really loved me, then why would he let me be thirsty? If God really loved me, then why would he let my husband do that? if God really loved me, then, then why would he make me addicted to drugs or to, to pornography or to alcohol? And if I am addicted to those things or my husband did do that sort of a thing, then, then God doesn't love me. That's what's happening here. That's what, that's what this subtle twisting is about here, to get Jesus to question the Father's love. And when we question the Father's love, then we start to question the whole thing, don't we? What on earth is this? What am I doing? Why am I doing it? Sounds like the book of Ecclesiastes, if you know that. But it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus' response Supported in a number of other places in Scripture, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Matthew 6, verses 31 through 33. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, so these are... Early on here, that the Gentiles would have been everybody else except for uh, the Jews, the Israelites. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all those things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all those things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so what are we supposed to concern ourselves with? right? God and, and his plan and his mission, and we're supposed to focus on his love, not question it. Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God will supply all our needs, our, our, our minds, our actions, our thoughts should be fixed on him. And these other things come into place. Now, let me be clear here, God's not a genie. Well, that does not mean that we might, like, we might uh, dislike the timing or the provision or we'll fill in the blank. Going back to the Israelites, you remember their response when God provided? <laughs> they kept complaining, right? Not that one. That's not enough. That's too much. That's too cold. That's too hot. Uh, In the second temptation, I talked about it being where we don't skip the objectives. We don't skip the objectives. And so uh, in a combat situation, we've got the main mission, uh, the, the, the path that we're all on, either individually or as a collective force. There's this overall mission that we're pursuing, right? But within that, are certain objectives that we need to hit, certain objectives that we need to meet, waypoints. Maybe it's locations we're plotting along, or there are certain targets that we have to take out one after another, after another, after another. And we might not be privy to why or or what's coming next, or we're gonna go left instead of right or any of those things, but we know that there's an overall mission and we know uh, there are specific objectives along that way. Verses five through eight. The second temptation. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Uh, And the devil said to him, I will give you all this dominion and its glory, for it's been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be all yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So what's happening here? Well, the first temptation had to do with provision, food and water and material needs. And of course, this this next one on the surface is about power. It's a temptation to have power, but it's more specific than that. You see, in Jesus's case, it's this have it now part. That's the real temptation. Yes, it's the power, but it's the have the power now. The devil is familiar with Scripture, as we'll see in the third temptation, so he knows uh, wrong interpretation much of the time, but he knows what the plan is here. And he knows that the Son of God is supposed to succeed, so he knows that the Son of God has the power of God, and there's something that's playing out. What he's doing here is he's saying to Jesus, you can have it now. Or for those of us that like Monopoly, that's not a game we can play in my household, uh, advance to go and collect $200. And what does that allow us to do? Right, We skip things. In the board game, we're skipping all of these different places. We're skipping the obstacles. We're skipping the potential of Uh, of landing on Matt's thing with 14 hotels on it and he's going to bankrupt me. We get to skip all the turmoil, all the trial, all the suffering. We get to go, get to get to go, and we get paid to do it, right? Get it all. Get to take it now. In the first few chapters of Luke, we spent quite a bit of time talking about Prophecy And what was leading into this time? Why, why now? Why did Christ come at this point in history? Or the people had become so corrupt and, and, and so the opposite of what the Lord's intention was for them. And Rome had taken over and all of these different things that the time Was now. We go back and we look at Isaiah and Ezekiel and other Old Testament prophets, and they talk about the foreshadowing of the Messiah, the one to come. And it spells out for us exactly the process that the Messiah was to go through, right? Things as clear as where he was born, that he would be pierced for our transgression that he would come into the city on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey. It's all laid out for us. And so what the devil is doing here, he's telling Jesus, hey, I know there's a future for you somewhere, but I can pluck you from here and put you here, and you get to skip all of it. I want you to think about where you are in your life now, or maybe some recent turmoil or trial. If this had been offered to you, hey Mona Jean, I'm not I can pluck you and put you over here. And you don't have to do it. How many of us are raising our hand for that? I mean, if we're looking at ourselves in the mirror and being honest. Probably more than we'd like to admit, right? If I could just push the fast forward button or skip. Maybe rewind. Depends, right? There's definitely some things I'd like to rewind, but so that's what he's saying to Jesus here. But what's he gotta do? It's to worship who? Right? And what's the Bible clearly tell us from cover to cover? There's only one God, one that we worship. And so again, we see this this figure, the the deceiver, the, the, the tempter trying to usurp authority, right? Put himself in the place of God. And isn't that exactly what would have happened if Jesus had said, cool, let's do it. For you and I, before we get to the third one here, I think the the obvious takeaway is, is that we need to endure and not fall for the temptation to skip over hard things, to skip over trials, to skip over suffering, to skip over having that hard conversation with someone skip over maybe having to have that hard conversation with someone five times. Oh, that person's lost. I'm not going to bother praying for them anymore. My husband's too far gone. My kids have ran away and they don't know the Lord. Or what do we do with those things? What's our example here? to endure, to endure the trials, to endure the suffering, to not skip over these steps because we believe that there's already a foregone conclusion there, right? And that leads us into the third one, this presumptive attitude, a presumptive attitude. Uh, A few scriptures just to to anchor what we just talked about. Don't fret because of evildoers. What we have a tendency to do, and I talked about Psalm 73, last week a little bit, we have a tendency as believers to look at non-believers and say, well, why don't they have any trials and tribulations? It seems like easy street for them. Here I am, a God-fearing man, and I'm encountering this, that, this, that, and the other thing. But we're not supposed to do that. Don't fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward doers of unrighteousness, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like a green herb. Psalm 40, I hoped earnestly for Yahweh, and he inclined to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a high rock. He established my steps. He put a new song in my mouth and a song of praise to our God, and many will see and fear and will trust in Yahweh. What happens when we endure suffering and we come out on the other end? Right, We're stronger individually, we're stronger collectively because we see each other endure those uh, trials and sufferings, right? And doesn't it renew and bolster our faith? Those are things that we should talk about and, and celebrate. The last temptation here, don't trust presumptuously. Don't trust presumptuously. And he led him to Jerusalem, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, "'If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone.' And Jesus answered and said to him, "'It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test.'" Don't trust presumptuously. Don't presume. We can fall into the same trap the devil has fallen into uh, since he was cast out of heaven. And that's for us to not recognize that our role in this story is a subordinate role. That the Lord is here and, and we're somewhere below, that we're subordinate, that we're not equal to, and we are certainly not on top of. And what's happening in this passage, uh, the devil quotes uh, Psalm 91 here, so that should also be a lesson to us. If the devil can quote scripture, then we ought to be able to as well, Amen. Is that something that you can do? Hopefully, if not, start practicing. It can be really simple. Use index cards or sticky, sticky notes on your bathroom mirror, on your dashboard. You don't need to memorize 100 pages at once. You can do a handful of verses at a time, and you just keep chunking your way through it. If he can, then we ought to be able to as well, right? But here's the, here's the rub. Like you would expect, Psalm 91 is sort of kind of true, but he twists it, right? Would you and I have enough awareness just to see this and go, something's not quite right there? Maybe he quotes it verbatim, but is he applying it in the way that we ought to apply it? No. Why? Because he's getting, he's attempting to get Jesus to, again, be presumptuous. He's getting him to try to assume uh, that Psalm 91, in this case, is going to be acted upon. If I just throw myself down there, then the angels are going to come and save me. We do that a lot. Modern Christianity, there's different kinds of names for it. You've probably heard of this thing called the health and wealth gospel, the word of faith movement. These are the kinds of things where it's this name it and claim it sort of a thing. There's a word for some of this stuff that's really popular right now that I'm going to manifest it. If I think it, if I believe it, it will be. Let me let, let me let you in on a little secret here. You and I don't create anything that wasn't already created. There is one creator, God. If I think it, it will be. If that describes, uh, maybe if you're visiting today and that describes a church that you're a part of or that you listen to, you might second-guess that and find an alternative. This is not a biblical practice, not one that we see grounded in Scripture. It's the opposite. We shouldn't presume anything because when we presume on the Lord, we're questioning his love, we're questioning his faith, Uh, his faithfulness, We're, we're, we're putting all of that in question. And what we're doing essentially is saying, God, I want to flip the script here. I want to tell you what to do and you're going to respond to me. Right? Isn't that what it is? Throw yourself down there, he'll save you. What's Jesus's response here? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not put the Lord your God, to the test. Exodus 7, this comes from, Then Yahweh said to Moses, See, I set you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh uh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart with stiffness, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Uh, But Pharaoh will not listen to you, and I will set my hand upon Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt, and I bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. And so Moses and Aaron did it as Yahweh commanded them. And they go into the wilderness... And they were barely out there before they started complaining. Why did you bring us out here to just kill us? Let us go back there as what? Slaves. Right? Give us some water. Give us some food. No, not that water. That's too much or too much food. I don't like that. That's too much of the same thing. Constantly complaining. This is what is being referred to here uh, from Deuteronomy 6. That's what Jesus is quoting here. Do not test the Lord your God. It's talking about that scene where the people are complaining about what provision God had given them and testing him, testing his faithfulness, testing his word. And what are they really testing? They're testing that God said he was going to do a thing and then do it right? I'm going to bring you out of here. I'm going to give you the land of milk and honey. You're going to be my people from here and forever. And so the presumptuous acting, the, 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 the testing is to say to God, I don't believe you. I don't believe that you're going to do what you said you were going to do. Can you think of times in Scripture where, uh, where God reacted to people that, that, that questioned his faithfulness and his righteousness? What his standards were and expectations? I mean, in all but a few cases, it's not a very pretty scene. God is holy beyond anything that we can comprehend. He is faithful to his word Every word of it. What he says he will do, he will do. Again, we might not see it in our lifetime. Some scripture talks about, but he's always working out his plan according to his purposes. Always and forever. And we get to play a part in that. And so Jesus's response to the devil here is, we are not supposed to put the Lord God to the test. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. In fact, he's doing it right now. In our text, he's doing it through Jesus. This ministry of his that's just getting off the ground. All of these prophecies to this point that had already been fulfilled and that we're going to continue to be fulfilled as we see this gospel of Luke play out. A couple takeaways here. Uh, we can put God to the test by acting on future promises as though they were present promises, right? Isn't that kind of what's happening here with Jesus and and, and the devil saying, throw yourself down from here? I mean, he was fully man, so unless the angels did come and save him, it's like 400 feet down what was going to happen, right? Right? So we should not test God by acting on future promises as though they were present promises. God's working out his plan in whatever time frame, in whatever way that is. Our job clearly in scripture is to remain obedient and faithful to him and his word. And he's working out the rest of it in our lives individually and our lives collectively. Secondly, secondly, wrongly responding to adversity and we covered this a little bit already. We want to skip over that stuff because it doesn't feel good or this is taking too long or whatever, right? We want to skip it over it. That's not how we should face adversity. We saw those scriptures that that told us to take this on exactly the way that Jesus took on the devil here in this passage, Right? Close combat. Face to face. What's resist the devil and what? To say, he will flee. So face up to it. Don't skip over the adversity. Don't skip over the trials. Don't be surprised by trials. Be ready for them and prepared for them to face uh, that adversity. And then just a general thing here, um, we all know people like this that that can live reckless lives, let go and let God, right? I'm not thinking that when we're face-to-face with him and we use that phrase in that way, that's what it means, right? We don't see examples of that in Scripture, of what we ought to be doing, what we ought to be pursuing. Some of you were here for probably the loudest moment that I've ever been on stage. It was the week after Easter, and there had been this just blasphemous Easter message at a church that just was appalling to me. One of the takeaways from this Easter message was, I want to do everything short of sin to reach people, right? And we're flirting with this line of sin. It tells us to flee sin. Flee from it. Not dance with it. Not live recklessly and see if the flame is going to touch us because somehow we're, whatever, faster, smarter, immune. You're not. Right, And so that recklessness, which this would have been had Jesus acted on it, along all the other things, would have not been in keeping with uh, what God has for us in this life here on earth. One last piece. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. What should be our takeaway from that? He's still got a job to do. He's got a lot of people working for him. So if he's still working, then what does that mean for you and I? We got to still be working, right? And in so many ways, he's smarter than us, craftier than us, deceiver, all of those kinds of things. And man, so we have to be on it Romans 12.2 talks about what? Renewing our mind. We renew it with what? The Word of God. So that we're ready when those kinds of things uh, come into our lives and we encounter that sort of thing, so that we're prepared because even though these temptations were finished, uh, think of the next three years for Jesus. Like it this didn't go away, right? A lot of people working against him. To the point of death. And so we need to keep that in, in mind as we navigate uh, our uh, Christian walk as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the, the conviction that it brings. Lord, thank you for Jesus and his example, uh, these clear examples uh, in these uh, three instances of temptation uh, and the way that, that he so profoundly stood up to uh, the devil, full of the Holy Spirit, with your word to combat that. Lord, I I pray that we use that as an example today and as we leave here and as we encounter the the trials and the the, the suffering and the things that are coming for us uh, tomorrow and, and this week. I pray that we're Bold. I pray that we lean on the Holy Spirit that resides in us and, and we use your word that, that we study and we have written on our heart to combat those sufferings and those trials and that we stand tall, that we recognize that those things are just around the corner, but we know that we're prepared for it. Lord, we know that you're always with us. Uh, in those moments and that we just continue to stand up to that fight as we move forward. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be sure to stay up to date with the latest information at LSEC.tv. While you're there, click on Connect to find a way to get more involved at LSCC, or learn about how to put your talents to work in one of our ministries. If you've been blessed by this podcast and call LSCC home, consider supporting LSCC financially by going to lscc.tv give. Big or small, every gift helps us in our mission to love God, love others, and be the church in our mission field near and far. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you back next week.